We are in the book of Acts. And we've been at it for a while. Because our goal and desire is to understand this book called Acts. And our prayer, one of the reasons why we're doing expository sermons is that we want you at the end of the day, once we are done with this book of Acts, you will have an understanding of this book and you can say a thing or two. You can discern the move of God in the book of Acts. You can discern the voice of God through the accounts of history over what the Holy Spirit has been doing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so today we are looking at uh, Acts chapter 22 from verse 23 to um, Acts chapter 22 from verse 23 to chapter 23. Praise the Lord. Amen. So that's what we are looking at today. And um, these verses are divided into four. Uh, Paul before the tribune, that is chapter 22 to 20, um, chapter 22, verse, chapter 22, verse 22 to 29. Paul before the chief priests and the council, that is chapter 22, verse 30 to 23, uh, verse 11. The Jews, 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 Jews. That's where I come from. Plot to kill Paul. And that is chapter 23. And uh, Paul sent to Felix, the governor. Um, yes. All right. Good. Now, last week, Pastor Kibet took us through the previous chapter. And towards the end, or rather the beginning of chapter 22, we saw that Paul was held as a prisoner by the Roman authorities. That is in Jerusalem. And uh, you remember Paul asked for permission to speak and uh, to speak to the crowd that were angry, the, G the Jewish uh, leaders and authorities uh, were angry at him. And he asked for permission. Now, the Roman uh, authorities, or rather the Roman, uh, granted him permission because they also wanted to come to an understanding of what was happening. They wanted to understand, okay, perhaps if he speaks, we'll get an idea of why this guy is in trouble. And so they granted him permission. But we see, we see something amazing. Uh, I don't know if you'll find it amazing, but to me, it is amazing because Paul is an intelligent man and he uses tact to do something here. And uh, Paul is between the Romans and the Jews, and his mission is to ensure that they hear the gospel. And therefore, Paul begins to use some tact, some applying wisdom, and uh, as we shall see. And so what happens? He speaks to them in Hebrew. Now, you need to understand that Aramaic dialect, Aramaic dialect was survived uh, into Roman times. And Aramaic had, had replaced Hebrew as the language of the Jews as early as the 6th century uh, therein. And uh, even certain portions of the Bible were written in Aramaic, like, for example, Daniel and Ezra. Now, among the Jews, Aramaic was a common language that was used, that was, uh, was used by the common people, the common Mwanainchi. However, Hebrew was mostly for religious reasons. And, um, and also for the people who are of the upper class. And therefore, whenever the Jews wanted to discuss matters that were confidential, or rather they didn't want the Romans to know, they will speak in, G in the Hebrew language. And so Paul adopts this tactic, and when he has asked for permission, and now both parties are curious to hear him out. He spoke in Hebrew. And that is uh, chapter 22, verses 22 to 29. Um, may I have a volunteer? <laughs> Someone who can help read. So Acts 22, verse 22, it says... <clears throat> um, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, read the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, 
the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even found, been found guilty? Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen. Paul replied, those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Amen. Now, Paul had given a testimony and a reason as to why he was in that situation. And he told them, hey, I, am been, I have been sent to the Gentiles. And that was blasphemous, you know, because the Jews, people, they knew, or rather, they had hold this truth that the gospel, or rather, the Jewish tradition is just meant for them, not the Gentiles. And for, so now Paul saying that he's been sent to the outsiders, that's when they knew now this guy is lying. And it brought trouble. It brought trouble. So after that statement, we see something amazing happening here. Remember the first tact Paul used was switching into Hebrew. Because at that particular moment, the audience was the Jews people. And what happened? After speaking this way, riots. And so what happened? And this is why it was blasphemous to their ears. This is why they acted angrily. God would never make a way available for Gentiles. And that's what Paul was purporting. And this was proof Paul was lying. And so what happened? The obvious thing to do when this blasphemy is death. And so they decided this man should die. He's not fit to live. Well, the Romans were the law keepers and therefore they wouldn't have that to happen in their watch. Besides, they haven't really figured out what's happening. And so what happens is the Romans, the soldiers, the obvious thing to do is to take rescue uh, Paul because they're still interested to know what's really happening. Why is this person, why has he uh, angered this crowd? Now, something interesting happens again. The Romans have realized this guy is making a joke out of us. We want to know what has happened, but he's not revealing. So let's go whip him. And now, Paul does something again here. He has hidden as much as he could from the Romans. Because he wanted their protection. But what happened? Paul also knew that once he had pushed the Romans, the Romans' patience too far, then he knew just at the right time when to reveal his identity, his citizenship concerning being a Roman. Now, at that time, being a Roman had certain privileges. Uh, for example, um, they could never receive punishment without due, due process. That was a benefit of being a Roman citizen. Secondly, it was illegal to scourge a Roman citizen under any circumstance. And so what happens? We see Paul just waits until these Romans have arrested him and they're about to scourge him. That's when he pops the question tactfully and asks, is it lawful? Is it lawful to whip a Roman citizen? I wish this was a movie. You could have seen the reaction of the Roman, uh, the commander. You, you, you could have seen how he was so surprised. And what happened is that he runs to the captain 
you know, he runs to the captain to inquire, hey, we have a situation. Something is wrong here. The guy that was about to be beaten out there apparently is a Roman citizen. And we almost violated the law against his life. So there is a problem. And so we see Paul using the citizen card tactfully to advocate for something that he wants uh, in return. And what he wanted in return is an opportunity to further the gospel through the Roman Empire. Tactfully. Now, God has gifted each one of us in various ways. Uh, you could be skillful in art. You could be skillful in matters negotiation and language. You could be skillful with your hands. You could be skillful with matters finances. And uh, we thank God for um, Mr. Amos Ngahu, who will be our, pre our speaker uh, during Jabari. Uh, we thank God for you. You could be skilled in so many things. The question is, how have you utilized your skill in fathering and advocating for the kingdom? Thank you, Amos Mungera, Papa Bear, who is also using his skills to father the kingdom through mentoring fathers. God bless you. Are you using your skill? Are you using your talents, the giftings that God has given you tactfully to further the kingdom of God. Let's proceed. In verse 27, we see the commander having this conversation and asking him, um, you're a Roman citizen. He's, Paul said, yes, I am. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But, but I was born here. I was born a citizen, Paul said. Now, at this, the centurion, there were three ways, or rather, there were three ways that uh, anyone could become a Roman citizen. One, by imperial decree for services rendered to, this, to the empire. So if you are in good, uh, uh, you had a connection with the empire and you are rendering some services, then an emperor or someone with authority could render you a citizen by decree, imperial decree, and you'll be given papers to validate that. Another way you could have become a Roman, a Roman citizen is by birth under certain criteria. There was a threshold. And thirdly, by purchasing it. And by purchasing it, you had to be loaded. You had to have enough money, which was very expensive. And so that's why the, the centurion here is mentioning that, hey, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. This shows us that his citizenship was acquired through purchase. Let's read chapter uh, verse 30. Verse 30 to 11. Um, before the Sanhedrin, verse 30, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Chapter 23, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Verse 6. 
Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Amen. We see Paul being brought before the chief priest and uh, the council. And um, because the centurion hasn't really gotten exactly what he was looking for, he thought, hmm, let me try again. This man, okay, he's a Roman citizen, but still there's chaos. I want to get to the bottom of it. And so he calls for a meeting. And the centurion, or rather the chief, uh, the chief priest and the council, the council which constituted Pharisees and the Sudasis, and they are assembled there in the morning. Now, they're assembled there, sorry, they're assembled. And something happens. Paul looks at them and addresses them again. And he gives them his story one more time. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest ordered someone near him to strike him. Meaning, hey, shut up. Be silent. If, the, if uh, there was an eyewitness, he would have mentioned something like that. I'm going, Ku. You know? Paul Lakaskia, Ku. Now, Paul responds angrily, indignation. And he calls him, hey, you whitewashed. Something similar Jesus did to the Pharisees. Remember what he called them? Anyone remembers what Jesus called the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs. Meaning that you guys look so clean outside, but inside you're rotten, you're dirty. That's what he called the high priest. Now something interesting happens here. And, of course, people have disagreed with him. And a question, if Paul was who he claimed he was, didn't he, didn't he know that it was the high priest? Is it possible that he didn't know this was the high priest? It is possible at that time. Why? Because this council was called very, it was called urgently. And it is possible that the high priest was dressed, didn't probably have enough, enough time to dress in, dress in his robes. And therefore, he was just like the other, the other people. And uh, that's probably why he called him that. But something about this uh, Ananias in particular is that um, church historian Josephus wrote that this man was insolent, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. It is said that he stole the tithes that were to, to go to the priests. He conspired to instigate uh, outbreaks of violence. It is said that he maintained his grip on power as high priest because of his strong pro-Romans stance. And it was, it's also said that he was later killed by zealots in AD 66. So we see why Paul would have this kind of attitude towards this particular group of people, and especially the, the high priest. So 
So when Paul has been struck, he cleverly points out that, hey, it is against the law. How can you say you are righteous, yet you're breaking the very law you're trying to defend? That's why I'm calling you whitewashed, you know, whitewashed stone. So in a way, Paul pointed out the truth. My question to us is this. Do you have the courage in the postmodern day? Do you have the courage to point out truth? Do you have courage to call out someone, a brother, a sister, and point out truth when necessary? Do you have the courage to call out a brother that you see probably is heading the wrong direction, his relationships are not right, or have we reserved judgment to the Lord? <laughs> Today when we are called to account, we say, Usini, Usini judge. In the postmodern world, Usini judge. But actually God has called us. If you love me, I am giving you permission. Respectfully and in an honorable manner. If you see anything in me, that does not please the Lord. I'm not saying pleasing you <laughs> because we have different preferences and uh, tests. But anything, if you see me going the wrong direction, please call me out. If I see you going the, right, the wrong direction, we are supposed to give each other permission to call each other out in order to restore each other. But if you claim to be my friend, yet you wait till you say the words like, I saw it. Please. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, we are each other's keeper. And there's something called blind spots. Blind spots are things we don't know about ourselves, or rather, we don't see about ourselves. There could be certain characteristics that we have that we are blind to, that we don't know we do. I think I've shared this before. My wife has helped me so much. Um, I used to, whenever I used to take tea, apparently, I didn't know, apparently I used to lick my cup after taking. My logic was I didn't want it to drip. But I didn't, I didn't know it was bad table manners. Thank God for marriage. And one day she pointed it out, hey, by the way, why do you always lick your cup? And I was so defensive at first. I was like, me? Mimi? How? Uh-uh. And then one day I caught myself red-handed. After drinking, then I was about to. All right. I hear you. Thank you. And that saved me. That helped me. I don't know how many times I did that in public. I don't know... Uh, if I did that in your house when I visited you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you felt about it, but at least she had the courage to tell me. And I also thank God for a few people I've interacted with who have given me honest feedback and told me, Pasi, this, this, and this, and I'm grateful. And it has been vice versa. So I want to challenge you to be that kind of a person who is open and ready to receive feedback. Ready to give feedback and ready to receive feedback. Because no one is an island. And watch out your attitude or how you feel when you're corrected. Pay attention to how you feel. Pay attention to how you feel. Because that speaks something about your heart. If you find yourself always on the defense Whenever you're corrected, whenever you're counseled, whenever you're given a, given a feedback that do not really sit well with you, and you've realized that you react, you become aggressive or angry, I want to challenge you to pay attention and ask the Lord to work in your heart. Ask the Lord to work in your heart. It's very natural and for us to surround ourselves with people and friends who will always praise us. He praises on us. But I want to challenge you. 
you also find people who can give you honest feedback. And tell you, my brother, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, my sister, no. The way you answered, the way you responded to that lady at, at, the, at the restaurant, mm -mm. no, that's not good. Ah, pana, the way they, uh, uh, no, that's not good. Surround yourself with people and you will grow. Surround yourself with people. Or rather, allow people to do that. So I'm going to give you this opportunity. Is there any feedback at this point? Yeah? They are challenging, man of God. Hmm? All right, I'm serious. I'm open. I'm open. It's part of my growth plan. Okay? It's my part of my growth plan. So if I approach you and ask you, um, please tell me two things you appreciate about me and two things that I can work on, just know I am on a growth plan. Sawa, sawa. Be nice and tell me. Sawa, Kate? So turns after service. Oh, sisai. After service. Okay, sawa. All right, good. All right. So, there's something attacked that Paul also uses here. There are two groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Paul knew the tension that this group of people had. And so he found a way to divide them, to distract, to distract them by bringing fundamental doctrinal issues that they are so divisive that they don't agree in. Matters to do with resurrection, matters to do with angels. And it's amazing how things flip. It's amazing that in a moment when Paul just mentions, you know what? I preach Jesus who was resurrected. He knew what he was doing. I preach Jesus who was resurrected. And immediately there was an alignment. The Pharisees believe in resurrection. And they believe in, this, in the spirits and angels. So the Sadducees do not. And so what happens? Immediately these people jump into his camp. Mtuetu. Mtuetu. Sounds familiar? Even today in the political arena, especially during when we are approaching elections, that's when we become so heightened. That's when you even remember your tribe because your tribesman is running for an office. And so these people forgot that actually they were against this man and they now divide. And it's interesting how the Pharisees are now coming to defend Paul. I wish we saw a movie on that. It's interesting. Paul did this to still buy time. And he used that tactfully. But it also exposed that actually these people, what they were really after, Paul had disturbed the status quo. Paul had stirred the water and they didn't like it. And the only solution they had is to kill this person. Someone said, if a hammer is the only tool you have in your toolbox, then you will treat every problem as a nail. It's either ugonge or That happens in relationships. Relationships at work, relationship at home, relationship with your fellow brothers and sisters. It's either nigonge or I say it as it is. Watch out. Watch out. Now, are there examples in the Bible of people who used their words tactfully to further their, their kingdom agenda? I wanted to share a few. The first one is Queen Esther. You know the story of Esther. Esther is a Jewish girl who finds himself in a foreign land and what happened uh, and uh, they were in exile and the king uh, has had a misunderstanding with the queen at that time this expels her and now the king is looking for a new queen and then Esther comes in the picture you know she's just a regular Jewish girl before uh, before raised by her uncle Mordecai you know and she's made a queen and then in the course of time, Mordecai finds out a plot to kill, that is a plot to kill the Jewish people and asks Esther to do a petition, to petition 
the king to stop it. But she's afraid. I mean, she's a girl. She's a young girl who is a queen. And there were laws in the land that stipulates that if you go in the presence of the king without being summoned, that could result to death. And what happens? We see in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai challenges her and says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's house, family will perish. And, know, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And so what happened? Esther has her people fast and pray. And then she risks her life and by approaching the king. And we see the king extends the scepter to Esther. She's safe. And what happens next? Esther doesn't ask directly. She comes up with a strategy, wisdom. And what happens? She first invites the king to a banquet. There's something about banquets. There's something about food, people. And then to a second banquet, my goodness, she's building curiosity and uh, And then on the second banquet, she makes her request. And we know the story. The king spares her life. Now, Esther's advocacy, using wisdom, tact, and her position, saved God's people. She used prayer and fasting, relationship building, and even food as a strategy to inspire the king towards compassion. The second person is Moses. You know Moses, raised at the Potiphar, not the Potiphar, at the Pharaoh's house as a, as, a, as a prince, and he grows up there, becomes very, very popular, and has favor, has a position, but what happens later goes to the wilderness, and Moses has a lot to teach us about how God can use us even when we don't think we are qualified. Do you ever think of yourself so little that nothing good can come of you? God can't use you. Moses teaches us. And he's living in the desert. Forty years past, the life, life of a prince has been forgotten. He's now taking care of sheep in the, in the desert. But we see something happens. God calls him and sends him to Pharaoh. Moses offers a slew <laughs> excuses why he shouldn't go in chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus. But we, let us see, Moses went. And it wasn't up to Moses to change Pharaoh's heart. God took care of that. And after reconciling himself to the assignment and accepted to go, something that it, it may take a while, God may call you now, but he may prepare you for a long time for an assignment he has called you. Some assignment can be instant. And what happens is that Moses, Moses' strategy was to do as God asked and to leave the final result to God. And because of Moses' ad advocacy, knowledge of the Egyptian ways of living, God used him as an advocate to further God's kingdom and the children of Israel were released. A third example is Nehemiah. Nehemiah had the audacity, the audacious advocacy ask. He wanted to leave his job as a cupbearer, a very prominent job, to go and rebuild the kingdom, or rather rebuild the walls of his city. After word came to him that, hey, your people are in distress. He used his position and influence, serving as at a palace, serving a very prominent and powerful king. He used his position. And we see that his strategy was to ask God for an opportunity to help put things right. And God granted his request. Nehemiah's prayer and request was, were bold. God blessed that boldness and, asked, and used Nehemiah as a witness to the surrounding nation. God's people, through the advocacy of one man, their lives were secured and the walls 
were rebuilt. The fourth example of someone else is Nathan. Nathan, Nathan the prophet, according to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember the story. Nathan was a prophet and advisor to the king at that particular time. And we see how um, and, uh, David had committed an offense, sin against God, by taking someone's wife and, and then killing the husband to hide the sin, to do the cover-up. And David is God's chosen king. And so what happens? God sends Nathan, and Nathan uses a story to illustrate the seriousness of David's sin. And it's effective in calling David to repentance. There are still repercussions, of course, from his sin, but because Nathan spoke the truth, David repented and avoided bringing further punishment on Israel. But I love the attitude of David when he responded, and that led to repentance. Advocacy that saved someone, and it saved David, and further, it saved the nation from further, further repercussion as a result of David's sin. The last example is the persistent widow. According to Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable of a woman to teach his disciples that they always ought to pray and never give up. And the widow in this story was a woman without a husband. Okay, that's what a widow is. Um, and she has little power, but she's desperate for justice. And she's going to a judge who we are told according to Luke chapter 18, verse 2, that neither feared God nor cared what people thought. I don't care what you say, what you do, it's up to you. All I care about is myself. That was the kind of judge. Yet this widow persisted. She had a strategy. Her strategy was persistence. And she went forward, kept going to, the key, to this judge. And the story also shows us someone with little power. Little power in the, in, the, in the world's eyes, refusing to give up on justice. And at the end of the story, Jesus reminds the disciple that if un, the unjust judge can grant justice because of persistence, how much more will our father? How much more? How much more? We are called to work to justice. We are called to work for justice, according to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And I want to challenge us, my brothers and sisters. These are just few. There are so many people who used their talents, their positions to advocate for the agenda of God, to advocate for the kingdom of God. Will you? Oftentimes, God will ask people when he, whenever he wanted to use them, what do you have in your hands? I want to ask you on behalf of God this morning, what do you have at your disposal that can be used to further the kingdom of God? What is it that you have that you think that it's inconsequential, it's not good enough, it's not big enough? Each and every one of us has something to offer. I want you to look deep inside and find it. And then the next question is, how do I use this for God's glory? I began by appreciating and celebrating uh, men and women of God who have been serving here at different capacities. That's one way of furthering God's agenda, furthering God's kingdom by using your time, by using your resources, your talents to further his kingdom, to become a voice. Never underestimate the little that you have or the much that you have. Put in the right place, in the right hand, the hand of God, it can do wonders. You're probably the leader of that home estate for a reason. 
You're probably a supervisor in that place of work for a reason. You've probably been employed recently at a new working station for a reason. You probably live in that estate, that place, for a reason. You probably have those giftings and talents that even none of us know about for a reason. You probably look that good for a reason. Now, all that that God has given you, if he doesn't find a place to serve God, someone else will find reason to use it. Let me give you an example. We are told that David, in fact, the Bible describes David in First uh, Samuel, no, Second Samuel, that David is a handsome man who fears the Lord. He's an able speaker, a good musician, and the Lord is with him. This is someone who is describing David to who? In the palace, to Saul. So we see David being very intelligent, handsome, and God used all those attributes. But also, when he messed up, when he slandered, slumbered rather, the enemy also used that. And husband as he is, he took someone's wife. Intelligent as he is, he tried to cover it up. Intelligent and tactful in war as he was, he disobeyed God by commanding a census that was illegal before God. The same way you and I you can decide to use all that the Lord gave you for his glory or for selfish pursuits. We have people who have decided to use the intelligence to be conmen, to defraud people, and we also have people who are very intelligent, who have decided, I am going to use these giftings to build the kingdom of God. If your giftings, your talents, your resources will not find place to serve God, they will find place for own personal selfish pursuits. So I challenge you, serve God with all that you have. Before I proceed, I just want you to take a moment right now and, well, note it somewhere, either a mental note or something, but I want you to take time and sit and do a talk as you count your blessings, naming them one by one. I want you to verify. This is a verifier question. Have I used this particular gifting for God's glory? It could be your voice. God has blessed you with an amazing voice. When you speak, people listen. How are you using that voice? It could be your, your presence. Yani, people are attracted to you. People, when they see you, they just want to come around you. They want to gather around you because you are attractive. You are attracting people. How are you using that? Let's read the last portion, verse 12 to 22. Um, the plot to kill Paul, verse 12. Mm-hmm. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They they went to the chief priests and elders and said, 
we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Verse 15. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He said something, he has said some, something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me. Sorry, let me read that again. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he had something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Paul transferred to Caesarea. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at, at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Cla Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he's a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him so I brought him to, the, to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Verse 30, when I informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, the they, they let the Calvary go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the Calvary arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from, learning that he was from Cilicia. He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered Paul he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Amen. God bless you. As we come to the end of our service and study of this chapter today, there's something that, uh, if I take you back to verse 11, there's something that God told Paul. He said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So that meant that there are or there was to be a transfer from Rome, from Jerusalem to Rome. And then from verse, uh, verse 12 to the end of this chapter, we see how that happens. Well, it happens in an interesting way through a plot to kill Paul by 40 Jews who conspired to kill him. And they would have succeeded had not a young man overheard them. A young man who happens to be Paul's nephew. So apparently, Paul had a sister in this place where, and pro probably that's where he would stay when he would visit this place. And so, and uh, this boy must have been young. For him to overhear, probably, he was too young to be considered 
someone probably important or a threat. And so he overheard this. And another reason why I'm saying that is because he was given access to go to Paul. Usually, no adult would be given access to a prisoner just like that. So this must have been a young, a young boy who overheard and reported as he had everything. And so God uses that circumstance to pave way for transfer for Paul so that the, king, the gospel may be preached to Rome. It's amazing how God can turn situations and circumstances around. All things work together for God, for good, for them who have been called according to his purposes. Those who have been called according to his name, all things work together for good. When the enemy means something for evil, God can turn it around to be something good. I don't know what you're going through, what's happening in your life, what seems to be off, what seems to be negative, what seems to be out of place. I'm not sure, but let me tell you this. God can use any circumstance and turn it for good. Anything that seems negative, any setback, God can use it for a comeback. God can use something ugly. God can turn the scars in your life to stars of testimony and testament. Praise the Lord. God can use that for his glory. There are few people, I call them the unsung heroes in the, in the book of Acts. Unsung heroes in the book of Acts. People whom, through just minute or something small they did, it contributed in a way to what, to, to what we have today. To what we have today. The first one is the crippled man in chapter 3. Verse 9 to 12. What was the heroic, heroic action? After his healing, he praised God. And as the crowds gathered to see what happened, Peter used the opportunity to tell, to tell many about Jesus. A testimony of what God had done. This man was healed. And just through that testimony, something amazing happened. Another one is the five deacons. According to chapter 6 of uh, verses 2 to 5. Everyone has heard about the Stephen who, was, uh, the, who became the uh, uh, Stephen who was chosen, who was full of the spirit. But what about the other five deacons, you know? And you may know Philip, who was among the chosen deacons. They not only laid the foundation of service in the church, but, they had, but they, their hard work also gave the apostles the time they needed to preach the gospel. The time they needed to preach the gospel. Church, allow me to say this. Look at me. If you have a gift, if you have a talent that you spot any of the pastors here doing and you can do to relieve them so that they focus in prayer and preaching, teaching the word of God, please do so. Please do so. That's the contribution the five deacons brought on the table. It helped the apostles focus on the main thing. That's a challenge. All right? Ananias, he had the responsibility of being the first to demonstrate Christ's love to Saul, Paul after his conversion. Remember, that's the first person God sent to, and he tended to Paul. The Paul who wrote three quarters of the New Testament was taken care of by that person. You never know what your aid might do, what your support, what your encouragement might do. You might be nursing the great revivalist. You might be supporting someone who is going to take the gospel further by just participating. And at this point, allow me to also affirm you and commend you for your continuous giving to us NCLA. Through your giving, we are able to continue serving. We are able to continue preaching the gospel. Thank you. Cornelius. 
His example showed Peter that the gospel was for all people, both Jews and the Gentiles. Rhoda, her persistence brought Peter inside Mary's home where he would be safe. James, he took command of Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council, and had the courage and discernment to help form a decision that would affect literally millions of Christians over many generations. Lydia, she opened her home to Paul, from which he led many to Christ and found a church, founded a church in Philippi. Jason, he risked his life for the gospel by allowing Paul to stay in his home. He stood up for what was true and right, even though he faced persecution for it. Paul's nephew, he saved Paul's life by telling officials of a murder plot. Julius, he spared Paul when the other soldiers wanted to kill him. You could be the unsung hero working in the shadows. May God bless you. Remember, all of us have an opportunity to advocate for the kingdom. I believe right now you've come to the understanding and the awareness that you don't have to stand on this pulpit to further the kingdom of God. There are so many ways you can do that. Praise the Lord. And now as I finish, I just want to call Njambi, if you may come, together with your husband. Let's appreciate them as they come. Church, I want us to thank God. Something happened this week. Um, okay, I'll hold the mic for you. Something happened this week that is worth celebrating. And I want Njambi to tell us. Praise God, church. Um, praise God again. Um, my husband and I, Steve, are standing here. It's a miracle we are here today. Um, on Thursday, on our way home, I was coming from a doctor's checkup. Um, we had an accident on Langata Road. I don't know if some of you saw it, those of you who live along Langata. We were knocked in the back by a pickup. Our car was flipped, overturned, and for a few seconds it seemed like time stopped. And to say it was scary is an understatement. In fact, I hadn't realized how bad it was until people were asking, when But God is faithful. And this thing looks worse than it is. I mean, it's a soft tissue injury. Nothing is broken. My husband is whole. Not a drop of blood. But the car, I mean, we went to see it on Friday at the police station, and I kept asking him, how did we come out? You know, but God is faithful. As we told our family and friends, people started saying, we've been praying for you. My sister prayed for us that morning. And at 3 p.m., which was when the accident was happening, she told God, I know Jambi and Steve love you. And if anything happens, they'll be with you. And she had peace and she went about her day. And so when we shared the photos and people started calling and they're like, you know, we've been praying for you this week. We've been praying for you this week. You know, sometimes it's, it's hard when you tell someone God speaks and they ask, how does he sound? Does he have a loud voice? Ama, does he move things around? But he speaks through his people. Um, I, I, honestly, I, I just told Pastor Titus, we'll come to church just to testify because if we say we'll keep quiet, we're denying God to be, a chance to be glorified. And honestly, this deserves his glory. It's not anything, not that we are good drivers, 
or we were, had our seat belts on. That's besides the point. God did it. And honestly, if you don't believe in God, don't wait for him to jostle you in such a situation. Just look around. There's testament of his existence. And all I said was Jesus. I just kept shouting. Steve says I was screaming. But the name Jesus means savior. And his word says in Psalm 91, he will not let even your foot slip. Honestly, guys, this God we believe in, he is real. He is so real. I don't know if you want to say something. Just to add a bit, um, I know all of us are here because uh, we know of God. But how many of us here know God? You know, being here is a testimony that you know of God. But I challenge you to know God. We know that God was with us. He will, and we know God. And that's just my challenge to you so that he came there. You know, we felt like we were in a bubble in the midst of flying glass and flying things. Nothing hit us, nothing, you know. We were like in a bubble. And, you know, coming out of it and, you know, just being able to walk around and do what you have to do. It's like God had removed us from, you know, what was going on around us. It's like we were, were observing, it's like we were watching from outside, you know, and then just, you know, being able to, because people are asking, hey, how guys, are, how you guys able to move around even drive or whatever it is? It's just that it's like we were not there. It's like God just shielded us, just like he covered us, you know. So it might look that bad, might look like it was a very, you know, serious accident, which it was, but God was with us. So my challenge to, to you is that you should know that God is there. And God does things and wonderful things. Thank you. Amen. I want us to pray. And uh, as we pray, the Lord has laid two things in my heart to share with us concerning just what I've pe I'm picking from this testimony. God may lay someone in your heart to pray for. Don't ignore that. God may lay someone's name. No. Take that opportunity to inquire, God, why, why am I thinking of this person? God may lay a desire for you to reach out to someone. Please do so. People, God laid Jambi and Wagura in people's heart to just pray for them. And those people obeyed. And we have our brother and sister standing here because of that obedience. You could be that aid that is needed somewhere. And God has just laid a thought. And God has done this over time by turning people's lives around through a thought planted in someone's mind and heart. Will you be that agent of change, of impact, when God lays someone in your heart? Please, arise. And let's be now on our feet and pray. Just give thanks first. Let's give thanks first. Just open your mouth and thank God for preserving our brother and sister. And then we make a final prayer. Just go before the Lord. Father, we thank you. Thank you for you are the sustainer of life. Thank you for you are the giver of the gift of life. We thank you, Father, for the victory that you have given our brother and sister, Jambi and Wagura. Thank you for preserving their lives, my God. Thank you, Father, for thwarting the evil scheme of the enemy. Father, thank you for saving them from a premature death, oh God. Father, thank you for the purposes that you preserved them to do. They shall live to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. They shall live to serve you and fulfill the purposes that you created them for in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for their lives. I thank you, Father, for what you have in store for them. Thank you, Father, for every life they will touch. Thank you, Father, for the testimony, this testimony that is touching someone's life somewhere, that is igniting a desire to pray in someone's life right now. Father, I pray that all that you're calling us to arise in prayer, may we arise in the name of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Father, thank you. And we continue to pray a prayer of cover over their lives, erect an edge of protection around their lives in the name of Jesus. Let no weapon fashioned against them. Let none of them prosper in the name of Jesus. When the enemy comes in like a flood, 
Father, may you erect a standard of defense and may they flee in seven different directions in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I extend these prayers to each and every one of us, including those watching us online in our social media. Father, I pray for cover. I pray for protection. I pray for spiritual cover in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray, Father, that may you thwart every evil scheme of the enemy that, has in, that is designed and fueled by the mission of Satan to still kill and to destroy. Father, we thwart them in the name of Jesus. We render them powerless in the name of Jesus. Father, accidents, we cancel them in the name of Jesus. Accidents, road accidents, we cancel them in the name of Jesus. Accidents by fire, we cancel them in the name of Jesus. All manner of accidents, we cancel them in the name of Jesus. Any satanic invasion, demonic oppression of any sort, we counsel them in the name of Jesus. I take authority that you've bestowed in me as your servant, for you have said our weapons of warfare are not carnal. They are mighty in God, used to demolish and uproot strongholds. Father, we counsel every evil scheme in the, end, in the atmosphere that has been launched against your children, that has been launched against the marriage of your children, that has been launched against our works, our careers. Father, we counsel them in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I decree and declare in accordance to your word that we shall live to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That, Father, we shall live to serve you. That we shall live to, to be full of age. As long as you tarry, we shall live to serve you. Father, I decree that we shall live to see our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We shall live to see the blessings upon our children and their children in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I speak special favor upon your children, upon us at our workplaces in the name of Jesus, at our businesses in the name of Jesus, at home in the name of Jesus, in our neighborhoods in the name of Jesus. Father, watch over us. We thank you and we bless you. And thank you, Father, for the service you've challenged us today that we can actually do something to advocate for the kingdom. I pray that you open our eyes to see that which you have given us, which we have in our hands that we can use to serve you. Father, we thank you and we bless you. We will never be the same again. We'll never let any opportunity to do God pass us anymore. Father, we shall subscribe to your will in the name of Jesus. Our lives are never the same again. We are walking by faith and not by sight. We are on kingdom assignment. Father, our expressions will please you in the name of Jesus. You'll show us ways to express the giftings you've given us in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you and we bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray and believe. Amen and amen. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord now and forever. Amen. Amen. May you go with peace and may God bless you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you God bless you. Amen. Amen.